Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Occidental scholarship is a fraud. It comes with its own knowledge, the way a guest comes to a potluck meal with his own communion bread. By definition, if you bring it, it is not the Eucharist. It is a McDonald's Happy Meal. It feels good, like a cheap date, but after you are done, all that's left are empty calories with a portion of your proceeds donated to the military-industrial complex. It does not matter what you know or where you studied. It does not matter what religion you are, your titles, degrees, institutions, fields, backgrounds, religions, and affiliations are all useless and pointless. Harvard is not your reference. Shake them off, Habibdi, and recite Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 in Hebrew. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Still, you are not getting the point. Why? Because you love God, so you say, as long as he leaves some room on his throne, with all due respect, for you and your impressive body of human knowledge. No thanks, O son of man, says everything else that has breath under the sun. All that matters is what is found in the text. And guess what? Anyone can find what is found with no need whatsoever of your wide-ranging liberal arts, your think tanks, the imaginary ones, and the ones that come preloaded with projectiles, your humanities, your thought leaders, your thought followers, your influencers, your systems of thought, your sophistries, your pundits, and your corrupt apologists. The so-called gray area of Western self-infatuation is a trap set by those foolish enough to seat themselves on the dread throne of the judge as though they have the authority, let alone the ability, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Alas, they do not, and they cannot. Thus, Paul condemns their sophistry to the dustbin of congressional hearings in 1 Corinthians. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Do not answer that question, not even to yourself. As disciples, we have but one task, not to answer human questions, 
but to deal solely with what is written, the commandments of God and to do them. Those who supplant God, not only to examine, but to relish the supposed gray area, lapse into something far worse than self-righteousness. In action. In the end, they may do something, but whatever it is, it has nothing to do with the artifacts found in the text. Their doings pertain to what they bring from their body of human knowledge. In other words, such fools sit themselves on their own throne, issuing their own commands according to their own preferences, ignoring what has been commanded by God in the text. I know, I know. This is the point in the homily where someone incapable of hearing will raise their hand on behalf of Descartes to ask, what do you mean by what is found? As if upon seeing $5 on the sidewalk, they would not pick it up. The only thing worse than a liar is the one who lies to himself. For indeed, the New York Times looks for excuses and universities search for complexity. But we preach unvocalized consonants. To the New York Times, a stumbling block. And to academics, foolishness. But to those who are called Christ, the power of God under a Bedouin tent. Christ, the wisdom of God, a cup of Turkish coffee and sweets far away from the stupidity of institutional cruelty and the insanity of human boasting. For, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 514 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the benefits of looking at the original Hebrew, you're not just learning Hebrew terminology, you're gaining knowledge from their mastery of both languages. I am seeing connections within Luke that I would not have recognized before. The one that stands out for me in today's program is the functionality of sitting. Kathime and kathimi both refer to sitting in Greek, and you can hear it in the poetry of the text. But they are not the same terms. They are different words in Greek. Hearing the parable in colonial English, one would never connect these two functions, let alone link them with the word therapy in Greek. But the genius of the ones who rendered the Hebrew in Greek 
those who translated the original Hebrew into the Septuagint Greek, is that they understood the interconnection of these terms. They had a grasp of the language that we don't. We simply don't. And that genius carries over into the genius of the New Testament because the author of the Lucan text was himself a master both of the original Hebrew and the Septuagint text. So the link between these terms and the Lucan narrative is not arbitrary. It can't have been. It's purposeful. And as Father Paul loves to say, it's not happenstance. It's not by chance. It's calculated. It's strategic. And if you doubt that it's strategic, remember these texts come to us from a point in time. Forget reception history. Forget making it relevant today. Stop daydreaming as though these texts were written for you or to you. They weren't. They were written in an entirely different place and time where the ones writing them were highly educated beyond your wildest dreams of what education is and what capability is in a time where there was nothing else to do except sit together and hear other people read something to you. There was no Netflix. And if you weren't going to see whatever entertainment the government was providing in the arena, you were sitting in fellowship with other people or you were doing whatever work it is you were forced to do to survive. So this was it. And if this was all that was it, every detail was critical. And if the brightest of the brightest of the most sophisticated, intelligent people were the ones producing this literature, you better believe it was strategic and purposeful and tactical, well beyond the capability of modern writers. So none of it is happenstance, and these connections are not imagined. And that's why, again, doing the archaeology of words is critical so that you understand the strategy of the authors. I think this is difficult for Americans to wrap their heads around because as a society, we identify with being monolingual. After one generation, two generations, no more than three generations, any kind of multilingualism we have in our family is destroyed. And I say destroyed, I don't say disappears, I don't say is gone, because it's destroyed, because it's the way that we have constructed our society and our identity through laws and through norms. You're not allowed to speak any language but English, and you can be punished if you don't speak English. And if there's other countries that don't have this law, we enforce that there. Most Americans, as a result, had the faculty of bilingualism, multilingualism destroyed. And therefore, the process of translation, of working in more than one language at the same time, is gone because of this destruction. The writers who are writing the New Testament know Greek and they know Hebrew. So they function between those and they see these correspondences and they understand how these work on a very intuitive level. Don't forget, they didn't have dictionaries. <laughs> they were working off their brains. Not that dictionaries didn't exist, but a lot of these people, they didn't have dictionaries to work from. What they had as their reference materials were 
the Hebrew slash Aramaic Bible and the Septuagint, the Greek Bible. And that's how they wrote this New Testament as those were sitting in front of them as they were writing, or up in their heads, more likely, because they memorized them. So the way that these words correspond, you know, it's not like a flashcard program where you take the word on one side, flip it over, and you get the other word. The words in Greek have their own relationship, and the words in Hebrew have their own relationship, and they're related to each other. It's very complex. So as we take the text of the New Testament and the language of the New Testament, we're constantly making reference to these other texts, because how could you not? This is how a writer of the New Testament would have to be thinking. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd. Right away, the first term that jumped out at me in this verse, which is translated as finding, is a bit misleading. The word is evrondes. I say misleading because when you hear the word finding, it immediately puts all agency and control in the hands of the people carrying the stretcher, which in principle makes sense in your imagination because you see people carrying a stretcher trying to do something. But if you consider the Septuagint text, it aligns to this term in Hebrew, masah, which means to find the point that Luke is making in the original Greek. But in Hebrew, it has a hint of very often serendipity in the Old Testament, which means to receive or to meet by chance, which implies grace. So they are going to find Jesus, they're going to reach him, but to meet him by chance. It's not a foregone conclusion. And there is a cognate in Arabic, a term rarely used. I had to do a little bit of digging to find an example of its usage. The word is anta, which means he was given. So the Arabic cognate, which is with ata, not the more familiar letter T for Occidental hearers. And it appears in the Hadith without the Ayn in reference to a verse in the Quran with the use of the Ayn. So the Hadith links the two spellings in Arabic. Inna Indeed, we have granted you abundant goodness. Surah Al-Kawthar 108.2. It's the same function. And it underscores this idea of something that is received. He was given. So just to hear this Hebrew word, Masah, as it's used in the Old Testament, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found, Masah, a helper suitable for him. Here we have an example where Adam is looking at everything that God provided 
and he's unsatisfied. So he's trying to find something for himself. So there's a juxtaposition. Are you willing to accept what was provided or are you trying to reach for something that you want? So in this case, this verb, masa, as it's presented in Hebrew, means actually reaching for something and not accepting what was offered. There are other examples where it functionally means to receive, not to reach out and take for yourself. It can work both ways. There's a link between receiving and reaching for. Very important, because if you take something, as Father Paul said recently about colonials, you must always remember in Scripture that you're receiving something from someone else. You don't just take. That changes the way one hears verse 19, because there's a gift that may or may not be offered by the power of the Lord, which we heard about in verse 17. That becomes even more striking when you consider, as I mentioned at the outset of the episode, this triangle or pyramid, if you will, where at the top of the pyramid you have the power of the Lord here in this section in Luke. And at the bottom of the pyramid you have two different characters sitting, the Pharisees, who are in verse 17, kathimani, sitting down while Jesus is teaching by the power of the Lord, doing what they should be doing. And it's an open question, what the heck they're doing sitting there while Jesus is teaching. We talked about that last week, Richard. And now, fast forward to verse 19, you have once again those who had to bring him up because of the crowd and went up on the roof, epitodoma kathikan afton. They had to let him through the roof. But the word kathikan, kathimi, means to let him sit. <laughs> Let him drop, let him fall, but let him sit. So they're putting him down through the roof to sit him down in front of Jesus. And this Greek function in the Septuagint, which is also aligned to or corresponds to the word yashab, is only used to render the word yashab with respect to permanence. When something is set up permanently. It also pertains to the throne. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay, yashab, stay there forever. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. She said to him, My Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit, Yashab, he shall sit on my throne. In both cases, and there are many other examples that reflect permanence and the throne. The Septuagint is rendering 
the original Hebrew, yeshab, using the Greek term kathimi. Functionally, the paralytic is being seated. In what way? And who is seating him? He is being seated by the power of the Lord as a reference, a permanent reference. He's being enthroned to bear witness to the instruction which was supposed to be the duty of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And to their shame and dismay, he's not going to stay put in the house that they've tried to seal off and fence off with the settler mentality they brought with them from Galilee. He's going to get up and walk away as a permanent reference. So it's the throne of the teaching, but it can't stay put. Even though it's fixed, it won't be controlled by the bullying sheep, even though it's permanent. What does that sound like to you, hearers of Ezekiel? Now, the other thing I wanted to point out, the word for roof, doma, in Greek corresponds to the Hebrew Gog, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. These men are seeking atonement. You have teachers of the law in the house. You have Jesus teaching while they're sitting down in the house. And now you have sinners coming in through the roof. You have you have these settlers, you have these settlers from the settlement in Galilee who should be giving instruction, instead trying to seal them in to keep the sinners out. The sinners are coming in through the roof, and Jesus now, remember, they are ekpasis gomis, but Jesus is going to forgive his sins, and that's how he's going to save the house when someone falls in through the roof. It's not the parapet that's going to keep the blood guilt from destroying the house. It's the power of the Lord wielded by his representative. All the motion that's happening in spite of the crowd here is notable. It reminds me of the passages in Mark where Jesus kept having to leave houses and cities because it got too cramped and people couldn't get to him. So he's trapped in the house with crowds around him, and the people who need him can't get to him. And this verb, kathimi, it's actually very similar to English. In English, we have sit and set. Sit is what I do with myself, and set is something I do to something else. If I put something down, I set it down. But if I take a chair, I'm going to sit. I can set myself down, but usually it's better to say I sit. If you're in a formal setting, they might say, please be seated, which means to sit. The way that this is expressed in Greek is the difference between the active voice and a middle voice, similar to a passive voice in Greek. If you want to understand this better, read my dissertation. I go deeply into this subject, the passive versus the middle. In any case, it's usually something one does with one's own body. With the scribes and the Pharisees, they are sitting 
And the friends of this man want to set him in front of Jesus. Sit and set. So in Greek, it's clear that these verbs are related, just like in English, sit and set are related to each other. But when it gets translated, they don't say they wanted to set him down in front of Jesus. I don't know why they didn't, because that would actually preserve a little bit of that connection. Instead, it's let him down. That's what it says in the King James. But it's related to this. They wanted to set him in front of Jesus. So we had the scribes and the Pharisees who are sitting in front of Jesus, and we have the friends that wanted to set this man in front of Jesus. They couldn't set him down. Why? Because of all the people seated around Jesus. I'm going to keep playing on this. So they can't get through the crowd because all these people are sitting around waiting for him to do something. But these people have business. We have a friend. He needs to be healed. Jesus isn't the magic healer. That's not his job. His job is to teach. So we're going to see what comes of this in a moment. But this play of sit and seat is there in the Greek, and you could maybe make it come out in the English, but it would be a little bit awkward. So I understand why they do things this way to make it sound like good English, but unfortunately, it undermines the connection that you find in the Greek that you can't find otherwise. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Of course, he is recognizing their trust, and this word sins is extremely important. And I wanted to take a moment to talk about it. One need not even give examples. The word in Hebrew is hatat. And I'm using the heavy H. I'm not saying hatat. I'm saying hatat. Because, in fact, in Arabic, and these consonants correspond when you're looking at the cognate. In Arabic, it's actually a ha. Whereas in Hebrew, it's a ha, it's a heavy H. It's an H pronounced at the back of your throat. In modern or Occidental pronunciation, it's typically pronounced as ha. But in classical Semitic pronunciation, certainly in Arabic usage, it's pronounced ha, the heavy H at the back of the throat. And it gets confusing because there are two sounds in Semitic Arabic, both the ha and the ha. So in Hebrew, it's hatat, but in Arabic, it's pronounced hatia. It's sin, transgression. You hear me chant it in the liturgy every Sunday, Rich. For the forgiveness of sins. There's another word, though, that actually corresponds as a cognate with the Semitic H, the heavy H at the back of your throat, it's hataba, which means firewood as a noun or as a verb, he gathered firewood. That's why I wanted to make that distinction, Richard, between the ha sound in the Semitic and the ha sound. Although both consonants, the ha and the ha in Arabic, connect to the heavy H sound in Hebrew, the other cognate shows this connection with bringing something to burn something for an offering as atonement for sin, which is very interesting. I mentioned just a moment ago this point about the settlers, and I'm using the word settlers because of this Greek word komis, village, which is a settlement. 
where you set a boundary to keep people out. And I want to keep saying this because Galilee is a place where you, in principle, had the intermixing of different peoples in the land. So why would you have a settlement where there should be commingling? And now they're coming from that place, the scribes and the Pharisees, to a house to keep people out. And the people they're keeping out are now coming in through the roof. It's almost comical. You're trying to, what, keep them out to stay pure? You don't want the sinners to come in? You're hiding in the house? And because of their trust, Jesus, by the power of the Lord, proclaims the forgiveness of sins to the paralytic because of their trust. And that's what makes, I think, Deuteronomy 22.8 functional here. And it's at once comical. It's almost like lemmings pouring in or pouring in over the edge, but also hopeful that you can't stop the beneficence of God's grace or the agency of his power for those who place their trust in him. No matter how many walls you build, how many fences you put up, how big the crowds are, you can't ultimately thwart God in the bounty of what he's offering for those who place their trust in his instruction. Along these lines, the other word that obviously goes right along with that is this word forgiven, afimi. There's more than one term that corresponds. You can be indulgent and show grace as the one who offers forgiveness. You can lift up, you can take something away, you can exalt, you can also settle down or rest. All of these different functions in Hebrew can be associated with this Greek word, afimi. Given the Levitical context here in Luke, the most logical alignment is the term salah, which you find, for example, in Leviticus chapter 4, which means in a very literal sense to forgive, or the forgiveness that comes through an offering, a sacrificial offering. He shall also do with the bull of the sin Hatat offering, thus he shall do with it, so the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Nislah, which is Leviticus chapter 4. But then you have the Arabic cognate, Salacha, which means to strip off or to peel. Which again, this concept is very much related to forgiveness because you have another appearance of Salah in Leviticus chapter 4, then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. There again is the appearance of Salah, forgiven, but you see how it relates to this concept of salacha in Arabic, to strip off. You're peeling and removing off the fat. This is a very specific technical understanding of forgiveness. We think of forgiveness 
as a kind of monolithic, abstract, philosophical concept. Just listen to how people talk about forgiveness is like, this is what it means. Let's define forgiveness and let's have a retreat on forgiveness. But it's a fallacy. There is no one word. There is no universal notion of forgiveness. The university itself is a fallacy. Harvard is a fallacy. Nothing is universal. Everything is specific. There are different cases where there are different terms in different situations and different types of atonement and different ways to settle different transgressions. You can't just say, oh, this is what the Bible means. Let's just forgive each other. I can't find that anywhere except in people's imagination. In this specific case, in the Gospel of Luke, logically, we're talking about atonement. So it's high time that we calm down, talk much less about what we know, what we bring to the text, and work much harder on the archaeology of words and what we find when we search the text. It's easy to jump immediately to talking about the forgiveness of sins because here's a guy who is sick and disabled, and they lay him in front of Jesus, and Jesus seems to not notice that the guy is paralyzed. (laughs) He doesn't even address it. People are coming from all around in order to be healed, but Jesus somehow didn't notice. What's striking is that Jesus's point of reference is not the man's physical condition. It's that the faith of the group showed that they were willing to submit to him. That's what Jesus is saying. Thanks, Jesus, but that's not what we came here for. (laughs) You know, you go up to the counter at McDonald's, and they give you a piece of advice. You're like, thank you very much, but actually all I wanted was chicken McNuggets. (laughs) Why, Why are you giving me advice? Jesus's reaction is surprising here. Jesus addresses him as friend when the word is anthropa, which means human. So he's saying Adam, meaning human. Anthropa, human, your sins are forgiven you. Human being, I'm addressing you as a son of Adam. The gender here is not relevant. Your sins are forgiven. The fact that the whole group of them trusted that the Lord was going to take care of them was enough for Jesus to say, okay, we're going to forgive you your sins. When he says forgive it, the Semitic helps us understand the meaning of the forgiveness and how this functions in the literary context of the Hebrew. Here, there's a play that only works in the Greek. Before, the word was kathimi, and now we have afimi. You can hear it even, the relationship. It's kataimi versus apoimi. So imi is put. Kata means down or low or through. Apo means from. So you have the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, sitting themselves, setting themselves down. You had these men who were putting this man down in front of Jesus, setting him down. And Jesus says, I'm setting away your sins. Apo imi. 
setting away. So there's a play in Greek. We have all these three occurrences of imi, whether it's kata, meaning to sit down, put down. Here it's setting away, putting away the sin. Again, you can only hear it in Greek. You can't translate it into English. Other European languages, you actually might be able to catch it, but in English, you can't catch it. It says that he saw their faith, afton, but he said, anthropa, your sins are forgiven. And that verb, the pronoun, is specifically in the singular. It's not, you guys, you folks, y'all sins are forgiven. No. You, individual human, your sins are forgiven. The theologian might say, well, hold on a second. How come those other guys don't get their sins forgiven? We don't get an answer to that. That's why theologians have long, long discussions, because the answer doesn't actually exist. So you can keep talking when there's no answer to the question. He looks at this human on the cot and addresses that person individually. Your sins are forgiven. When you stand up to preach and you start talking about the forgiveness of sins, be careful. What are you talking about? Which chapter, which verse, how is it being used literally? You know, people say, oh, you can't be literal about the Bible. Yes, you must be literal. Don't confuse being literal with being a member of some editorial board that likes to editorialize or being a wealthy donor that has no relevance except for those who read the papers controlled by those who editorialize in order to serve failing institutions that believe knowledge is universal when in fact it is specific. We have a word for people like that. It's called religion. That's something entirely different. <laughs> and every religion and every political party has fundamentalism. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about people who want to build a fence and keep all the people out that don't agree with them. We're talking about being literate and therefore conversant and literate, in other words, factual, when you speak, not projecting your body of knowledge and giving opinion and constructing when you speak, but observing what is found in the text when you speak and sharing it as information, which means you have to give examples from the text. Because I can give you 10 verses where this term is used, 10 different ways. So what do you mean when you say forgiveness? The word forgiveness in English is lipstick from the perspective of the original languages. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.